G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman and being a wills and estates solicitor, I am fascinated by cases of forged wills, which is why I'm so excited to cover this case today. This is the case of Cassar 2022. It's a Victorian Supreme Court decision. Frank Michael Cassar had a slight claim to fame. He was known as Australia's worst landlord. Frank had started his commercial interests with a panel beating business, then branched into tow trucks and then property holdings. He owned rental properties and rooming houses around Fitzroy, Clifton Hill and Elstonwick in Melbourne. He was the operator of a dozen inner-city rental properties and was given the title of Australia's worst landlord after he racked up at least nine convictions, 45 civil judgments against him and more than $50,000 in fines. As a landlord, he had withheld deposits, failed to lodge bonds with proper authorities, defied court orders, kept properties in a decrepit condition and engaged in illegal evictions. He had ignored dozens of fines and orders going back to 1999 for violations of the Residential Tenancies Act. He had convictions for assault and hindering police and was accused of evicting, harassing and threatening any tenants who made complaints about him or the properties. But this case isn't about the deeds or misdeeds of Frank Cassar. No, this is about the misdeeds of his family members after his death. In 2019, eight years after Frank's death, Sandra, Frank's de facto partner, admitted to the Supreme Court of Victoria that she had forged Frank's will. The forgery only came to light after the family got into a dispute in relation to Frank's $15 million estate. Background. Frank died on the 14th of October 2011 at the age of 60 years after a sudden heart attack. He left behind his family, being his partner of more than 30 years, Sandra, and their four children, Michael, Paul, Frances and Teresa. Frank controlled the day-to-day operations of his various businesses and some of his family also worked for him from time to time. As I mentioned, Frank got his start with panel beating and his partner Sandra worked in the office at the panel shop from the late 1970s. The kids were all involved in the business in some way when they were growing up. After finishing school, Michael worked for the panel beating business but would come and go. Frank and Michael would have clashes over Michael's involvement in the business. By about 2006, Michael and Frank had had a number of disputes about money and were no longer speaking. Frank and Sandra did not speak to Michael again until May 2011, about five years later at a birthday party. After then, Michael started coming around the panel shop again. Frank's last will was supposedly made in this period of estrangement when Frank and Michael weren't speaking. By 2011, Frank was in poor health. He had diabetes and had one of his toes amputated. He had undergone eye surgery and was temporarily blind. After his eye surgery, Frank would have his daughter Teresa sign checks and documents on his behalf by forging his signature. 
In early September 2011, Frank suffered a heart attack while pushing a car into the panel shop. He died the next month in October 2011. Between November 2011 and July 2012, Michael and sometimes Sandra would have meetings with a lawyer, Miss Davis, and Mr. Davis, in relation to Frank's estate. There was a meeting between Sandra and Miss Davis in early November. Miss Davis asked if Frank had a will, and Sandra said they hadn't found one yet. Sandra said that he had done a will about two years ago. When she was asked what was in the will, Sandra told Miss Davis that it appointed Michael as executor and that all four children were equal beneficiaries. In December, a will was handed to Miss Davis. The document was supposedly signed by Frank more than two years before his death on the 29th of September 2009. The will was one of those will kit documents that you get from the post office where you just fill in the blanks. So it would say, I appoint blank space as my executor. I give my estate to blank space and you just fill in the specifics. It was only two pages long and named Frank's eldest son, Michael, as the sole executor and the sole beneficiary of his estate. There was no provisions in that will made for Sandra or the other three children. On the 8th of December 2011, Miss Davis asked Sandra if she was there when the will was signed, and Sandra said she was, that it was signed at the panel beating workshop in front of Frank's two brothers. When asked why Frank hadn't left anything to Sandra, Sandra said that it was because of a tax debt. When asked why he hadn't left anything to his other three children, Sandra said that Paul had a drug addiction, Francis was a gambler, and Teresa had no sense with money. Sandra said that Michael would take Frank's estate and split it up, to which Miss Davis advised that Michael had no legal obligation to share the inheritance with his siblings. On the same day, Miss Davis also met with Michael. He told her that he intended to set up a trust for his mother and give her about $450,000 for her super and a managed pension when she attained 60 years. Michael received the grant of probate of the will on the 3rd of February 2012. As I mentioned earlier, a part of Frank's business had been property holdings, and that meant that a part of his estate was a large block of land in Fitzroy. On this massive block of land, Frank controlled seven of the eight separate lots, so there was only one lot that he didn't own on this huge block. In 2013, two years after Frank's death, Sandra moved into a house that was on one of those lots. The terms of the will left the whole estate to Michael, and therefore the control and ownership of the properties passed Michael. In December 2019, Michael purchased the one remaining lot that Frank hadn't owned, and having now owned the whole complete block, it was worth about $15 million. By 2015, about four years after Frank's death, Michael had not shared the inheritance as he had said he would. Sandra was concerned about this, and she went and visited a solicitor about challenging the will, and they lodged a caveat over two of the properties. On the 3rd of July, 2015, 
Sandra gave her son a letter she had written, which said, quote, Michael, I want to discuss with you the potential to finalise the saga that has engulfed our family for the past four years. No doubt that this has affected everyone from yourself and the other three children and obviously me. I don't want to continue the fighting and bitterness that consumes us. I just want some clarity and closure, as I am sure the rest of us do. That is why I'm writing to you to try to communicate unemotionally. Michael, I want to help you resolve this, and this is the best way I can see that the outcome can be achieved. The family estate is valued at $16 million. The liability, land and Francis Jr.'s tax, is approximately $10 million. The ATO stated that Francis Sr.'s tax debt was $2.5 million originally when he passed away. Now it is at a value of $4 million due to the elongated process of rectification that has taken four years now. Please give me a time and a date to collect my belongings. Jewelry, photos and Francis Senior's model cars along with the remaining items that were in the crystal cabinets in the billiard room as well as access into 64 Kerr Street to get my furniture. Michael, if you want the caveats removed from the Grandview properties, I want a letter written by your solicitor stating that when Francis Senior's tax debt is settled with the ATO, that the remaining assets are to be divided up evenly across the family. Sandra Kassar. End quote. Soon after he received this letter, Michael gave Sandra a handwritten note entitled Outstanding Bills. It listed various amounts which Michael considered to be the outstanding expenses arising from the administration of Frank's estate. Michael wrote, quote, This all gets paid before you get anything, end quote, and concluded, quote, Please remove caveats or you will be out on the street from your dog shit attitude, end quote. You can see from these correspondence that there has been a massive breakdown in the relationship between Sandra and her son Michael and that it related to the administration of the estate and Michael's failure to fulfill his promise to distribute the estate with Sandra and his other siblings. About two years later, in 2017, the family company leased one of the blocks to Sandra, Paul and Teresa for them to live in. The lease said that they would pay 2200 a month, but this being family, no rent was ever paid. Sometime in 2017, Sandra asked Michael if he was ever going to distribute the estate properly. She said to him that there were nine properties. If he gave one to her and one to each of his siblings, he could have the remaining five for everything he had done, and she and his siblings could take theirs and walk away. According to Sandra, Michael became upset by this offer and they didn't speak again for a long time. In March 2018, Michael and Sandra got into an argument in the laneway outside of the house where she was living. Sandra said that Michael went to strike her with a wrench, but he denied this. In June 2019, Michael sent an eviction notice to his mother and the siblings, telling them they needed to leave the home, claiming that they hadn't been paying rent. Soon after, Sandra commenced proceedings in the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal to have the notice set aside. She also started these court proceedings to have the grant of probate revoked. 
The hearing. Sandra applied to the court for an order that the grant of probate be revoked on the basis that the 2009 will had been a forgery. She said that at Michael's instigation, she purchased the will kit and wrote the instructions in it. She also watched her daughter, Teresa, sign Frank's name on the last page. Sandra admitted that both she and her son Michael had conspired to create the forged will after Frank had died. Michael denied that the will was a forgery and said that he wasn't present when it was made. Where a well-grounded suspicion has been raised that the deceased didn't in fact sign the will, the proponents of the will, being the people claiming that the will is valid, also referred to as the propounders, have the burden of removing the suspicion and providing clear and satisfactory proof that the deceased knew and approved of the contents of the will. Justice Tadgell, in the case of Robertson v Smith, described it even better and said that it was up to the propounder to demonstrate, quote, the righteousness of the transaction, end quote. Righteousness is a word I don't get to say often enough. You will note that I said where a well-grounded suspicion has been raised. It is not enough for someone to simply say, I think the will was forged, and leave it to the executor to go to the hassle of proving that it wasn't. The person asserting that the will is suspicious must establish circumstances that raise doubts that the will does reflect the wishes of the testator. Evidence that the testator gave the instructions for the will, or that it was read by the testator, or that it was read to the testator, is generally the most satisfactory evidence that the testator had knowledge of the will. There is also a consideration whether the testator had time to reflect on the terms of the will and seek independent advice. The standard of proof in civil proceedings, which applies here, is that the case has been proved on the balance of probabilities. So unlike criminal procedures where it's got to be be, uh, proved beyond reasonable doubt, in this case it's a slightly lesser standard where it's on the balance of probabilities. Are we saying that the testator knew and approved of the contents of the will? Witnesses. In this case, a lot of the key evidence comes from witnesses. So let's have a look at the evidence they provided, starting with Sandra. As I mentioned, Sandra was Frank's de facto partner of more than 30 years. They had lived together in a committed relationship. They had four children together and Sandra worked in the businesses that Frank ran. Frank had spent his last six weeks in hospital after suffering a heart attack. Sandra was with him throughout. She told the court that after Frank died, Michael kept asking her if Frank had a will, and she told him that she didn't recall Frank ever making a will. Michael said to her, well, um, you'd better organise something. Sandra searched through all of Frank's papers and his office and couldn't find a will. She told Michael this and he told her, You'd better organise something, because they're going to take everything. He said that the taxation department and the mortgages would take everything and leave her with nothing. Michael kept badgering Sandra about doing something about a will, and saying that she was going to lose everything. So she purchased a will kit from the newsagent, 
and the following day, when she was alone in the panel shop, she filled it out. She put Michael as the executor and sole beneficiary because it is what he had told her to do. He had told her that he had a good credit rating and could get finances to keep the properties. He told her after he got all the loans sorted, he would transfer all the properties to his mother and siblings. According to Sandra, it was Michael's suggestion that they get Teresa to sign the will. Sandra asked and Teresa initially said no because she didn't want anything to do with this and she didn't want anyone to get into trouble. Michael said he would speak to Teresa, and when he did, she again refused, and he told her, well, when we lose everything, it's your fault. Teresa then reluctantly agreed, but was nervous about doing so. Sandra gave Teresa the will kit she had filled out, as well as what Sandra referred to as the will pen. Sandra wanted to make sure that all signing and writing on the document was done with the same pen, so she made sure to keep a particular pen clipped to the document, which is a really interesting detail that's provided. Teresa got a document that had Frank's signature on it and put it up against a window. She put the will document on top and she traced Frank's signature onto the will. Sandra said that she then arranged for Raymond and Mike, who are two of Frank's brothers, to sign as witnesses to the will. The next witness we'll look at is Teresa. Sandra and Frank's daughter, Teresa, gave evidence that it was she who in fact signed Frank's name on the will document. She said that a few weeks after her father had died, Sandra and Michael both asked her to sign Frank's signature on the will. She did so by tracing her father's signature and her account of the events matched Sandra's. Teresa said that when she signed, her uncle's witness signatures, their names and addresses, were not at that time written on the document. Further, she gave evidence that she was very close with her father, so close that it wouldn't make sense for him to leave her nothing in his will. Teresa described herself as being inseparable from her father. They spent most Sundays together shopping or tending the chickens and pigeons in the backyard. He had bought her a 1978 red convertible Maserati for her 21st birthday. He had talked to her about her one day taking over management of the rental properties and giving her a house to live in. When Michael read the witness statements of Sandra and Teresa, he said he was very shocked and very disappointed. He made arrangements to get witness statements of his own, including having Raymond, who was one of the witnesses. So let's jump to Raymond. Raymond was one of Frank's siblings and was the other supposed witness to the signing of the will. He had signed an affidavit in which he swore that on the 29th of September 2009, he witnessed his brother, Frank, sign the will at the panel beating shop, and that their brother, Michael, was also a witness. The way that this sworn statement, this affidavit, was prepared was suspicious, though. According to Raymond, he got a phone call from his nephew, Michael. He hadn't spoken to Michael in many years and promptly hung up on him. Don't know what's going on there, but then Michael visited Raymond and told him that something was going on with Frank's will and he needed Raymond to sign an affidavit. When Raymond went to the solicitor's office, the affidavit had already been prepared for signing, so Raymond hadn't given any instructions for what was to go 
into this document. He shows up at the solicitor's office and this document's already drafted. The affidavit was put in front of him and he was asked to sign it, which he did. During the hearing, he said that he may have read the affidavit before signing it, but he doesn't believe that he did. Regardless, during the hearing, Raymond stuck to his story, which was that Sandra had invited him to the panel shop to witness Frank's will. When he arrived there, Frank, his brother Michael, and Sandra were present. Raymond said that he watched Frank sign the will, and then he signed as a witness. He denied signing the document after Frank died. The other witness to the will was Frank's brother Michael, who I will refer to as Mike so as not to confuse with the son Michael. Frank's brother Mike provided the court with an affidavit similar to Raymond's. The affidavit swore that Frank had asked him to witness the will and he had gone to the panel shop and he and Raymond had watched Frank sign, and that then they had both signed. Ten years later, Mike said that his nephew Michael was knocking on his door, asking him to see a solicitor, telling him that he had been to court, and the judge wanted to put Sandra in jail because she said the will was false. Mike asked what was going to happen to all of the property, and Michael replied that he was going to sell it and split the proceeds. Mike went to the law firm with Michael, uh, where he found the affidavit already printed, and he was asked to sign it, which he did. Not long after, Mike found out that Michael had evicted his mother and siblings. He also contacted Sandra's solicitor. It was at this time that Mike said that he had signed the will document in his own home after Sandra brought it to him about a month after Frank's death. He swore another affidavit, this one stating that, quote, The contents of my affidavit are wrong, in that I never witnessed my brother signing the document on the 29th of September 2009, or at any time. I signed the document at my home a month or so after my brother, Francis Michael Cassar, had passed away. My brother Raymond Cassar was not present at the time. End quote. So you've got Sandra and Teresa saying they participated in the forgery of the will. You've got Raymond, one of the witnesses, saying no, the will was not forged, that Frank actually signed it. And then you have the other witness to the will at first saying that the will wasn't forged, but then later retracting that statement and saying no, it was forged. And now let's move on to the other main character, Michael. Michael denied pretty much everything. He denied telling his mother to draw up a will. He denied telling his sister to sign. He said that it was Sandra who produced the will after Franks died, and it was only then that he learned that he was appointed as the executor and the sole beneficiary. Michael stated that it made sense for Frank to select him as executor because he was the only one who had the courage to stand up to him and show him that he could go out on his own and that he did not need to rely on Frank for a job. Michael also gave evidence about why other members of the family were not chosen to be the executor. As to Sandra, he referred to the fact that she had a criminal record and asserted that she had a tarnished name with creditors and no experience in business. He stated that his brother Paul had had substance abuse issues, had been charged with murder in the late 1990s, and had spent time in custody because of criminal offences. 
reading between the lines, I guess you could say that he was insinuating that given Paul's drug and criminal history, he couldn't be trusted to act as executor. Michael also expressed the view that his other brother, Francis, was not business-minded and that when the will was made in 2009, Francis was young and a gambler and so again couldn't be trusted to be executor. In relation to Teresa, in 2009 she was either still in secondary school or had recently left school and was therefore too young to be left the responsibility of controlling the family's business. Michael initially denied that he told Mike that if Mike didn't sign the affidavit, Sandra would go to jail, but later he said that it was possible that he did say that. The other key witnesses in this case were the document examiners. Each side got an expert witness, their own document examiner, to look at the signature on the will. Mr Holland was the document examiner for Michael, and he was given examples of Frank's signature on other documents, and he swore that the signature on the will had been made by the same person. Mr Gannis was the document examiner for Sandra, and he said that there was a strong indication that the signature was not genuine and was a result of a simulation or forgery process. The big question the court was trying to decide was, did Frank know and approve of the contents of the will? Sandra argued that even if it couldn't be proved that the will was forged, it should still be overturned because... A. It was suspicious that the will was not consistent with Frank's natural affections and moral duties. The will made no provision for his partner of more than 30 years. B. The will leaves all of the estate to Michael and nothing to the other three children. Even though Frank had been close to the other three children, they all worked with him in the panel shop and had never been estranged from him. C. Michael was estranged from his father from about 2005 to 2011, which included the period when the will was supposedly made. D. Obviously, being a homemade will, there was no evidence that Frank had seen a solicitor or gotten any legal advice. E. It was unchallenged that Sandra actually wrote the contents of the will, that she had filled in all those boxes... Even if Frank had told her what to write, would she have written those terms without any question or complaint? So if Frank's standing next to her saying, write down, Michael is the executor? Yep, okay, good. Okay, now write down, Michael is the beneficiary. Would Sandra not turn around and say, hey, 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 what about me? What about your other kids? It's suspicious. F. One of the witnesses to the will, Mike, is now saying that he signed the will after Frank's death. G. When Sandra met with the estate lawyer in November 2011, she said that there was a will, that the will left the estate to the four children. If she filled it out before this and was a witness to the signing, wouldn't she be aware of its provisions? Why would she say this to the solicitor if she knew it wasn't the case? And H. Sandra only gave the will to the solicitor about six weeks after Frank's death despite it being needed urgently for the businesses to be carried on. If the will had been made in 2009, why did it take her so long to locate it and give it to the solicitor? 
Michael, as the propounder of the will, has the onus of proving that Frank knew and approved of the contents of the will. He argued that all of those suspicious circumstances were not enough to raise doubt that Frank didn't know and approve of the contents of the will. I'm going to pause here to give you a moment to think about it yourself. Those suspicious circumstances I raised and mentioned there, are they enough for you to feel like, on the balance of probabilities, Frank did not know and consent to the contents of the will? Have a minute to think which side you're falling on. And now we're going to move to some further considerations. One of the requirements for a legally valid will in Australia is that it must be witnessed by two adults who watch the testator sign it and then they then sign it as well. And when they sign it, they're swearing that they saw the testator sign it. This is really valuable because you have two witnesses who can tell you that yes, this person signed it. Unfortunately, in this case, you've got one witness saying yes, Frank signed it and the other saying he didn't. Raymond was the witness who said that he saw his brother sign the will. He is the only witness who backed the validity of the will. However, the court found him to be an unreliable witness. To quote the judge, quote, My reservations and concerns about the reliability of his evidence were reinforced by the guarded and unduly argumentative manner in which he gave evidence about a matter which ought readily to have been the subject of a clear and straightforward evidence. For these reasons, I am unwilling to accept Raymond's evidence about the making of the will. End quote. This meant that there was no direct evidence of the making of the will. If we are to push Raymond's evidence to the side as being unreliable, this leaves us with no evidence that the will was prepared on Frank's instructions or that it reflected his wishes and he signed it. Another consideration is that Sandra and Teresa directly implicate themselves in a conspiracy to produce a fraudulent will at the instigation of Michael. Michael argued that Sandra wasn't telling the truth, because why didn't she tell the solicitors she had consulted in 2015 that the will was forged? Why did it take almost eight years from the time of Frank's death for her to come forward with this news? The court answered this by stating that, quote, To the contrary, if Sandra was the perpetrator of a serious fraud, it is unsurprising that she did not disclose it particularly given the serious implications disclosure may have for her and Teresa, end quote. It made sense that she would exhaust all other options first before disclosing that she had engaged in a fraud. The Outcome Before coming to a decision, the court noted that people do weird inexplicable stuff all the time. Although the way Justice Moore put it was, quote, care must be taken not to implicitly impose a blanket standard of informed rationality on human behaviour by discounting the probabilities of certain conduct occurring, merely because that conduct does not accord with the benchmark standard of behaviour. 
The daily business of the courts is a reminder about the extent to which human behaviour falls short of what might readily be described sensible or reasonable. In this case, the sense of crisis which befell the Kassar family, and in particular Sandra, upon Frank's sudden and unexpected death, and an imperative to do what was required to protect the business empire, make explicable Sandra's failure to take the sensible course. End quote. Basically saying that judges in our court system are faced every day with people acting in a way that is not sensible or reasonable and have grown to expect this kind of unreasonable behaviour in people. Michael failed to dispel the suspicious circumstances. Justice Moore accepted Sandra and Teresa's evidence and was satisfied that on the balance of probabilities, the signature on the will was not written by Frank but was in fact written by Teresa a few weeks after Frank died. The will had been revoked and Sandra was appointed as the administrator of Frank's estate. The judge said that, quote, It is difficult to underestimate the sense of crisis which must have been generated in the Kassar family by Frank's sudden and unexpected death at only 60 years of age. The possibility that family members might have formed the view, however mistakenly, that they would lose everything if Frank did not have a will, is not fanciful, end quote. Further, the judge recognised that Teresa was only 22 when her father died. She was unsophisticated and unworldly. She was, quote, placed in an invidious position of being prevailed upon by her mother and eldest brother to take an action which she initially refused to do, but which she ultimately agreed to do in order to save the family business, end quote. Lessons. So the lessons we can take from this case is firstly to do a will, and do a will with a solicitor and make sure that your solicitor and your executor have a copy and knowledge of where that original will is held. A will makes the administration process so much easier for the family and it can also make it harder for someone to forge your will because if there's a record that you've gone to a solicitor to make a will and that solicitor gave you advice, they drafted it for you, they helped you do a valid will. And then later someone says, oh, I've got this handwritten will. Well, a question would be, having done a valid will with a solicitor, why have they now done one without the assistance of a solicitor? Does that raise suspicions? Also, it means that if that um, forged will is overturned, the terms of the will you have drafted would be upheld. So you decide what happens with your estate. Another lesson would be don't forge a will. It is a fraud. It is a criminal offence. Obviously, this case was not a criminal law case uh, with charges being brought against Sandra or Teresa, uh, but it was still brought to light that a forgery had been made. On a side note, um, I should mention the tax issues that were kind of going through that case. Uh, Frank's estate was hit with a $3.3 million tax bill after his death. Michael denied the claim and taunted the tax office to try and collect. He told Fairfax Media, quote, they won't be getting a quarter of what's alleged, end quote. In the year before his death, Frank had owed the 
Australian tax office 2.3 million for income from his rentals and businesses, which he and his family had refused to pay. After his death, that debt had increased to 3.3 million with interest and penalties. In 2015, Michael settled the claims for a confidential amount. So this might provide a bit of um, background to what was going on there. Sandra said that when she drafted that will at Michael's instructions, he had told her to put him as the sole beneficiary and he would handle that tax debt. He was in a financial position to kind of bargain or deal with it. And then once he had saved the estate, he could divide it between him and his siblings. In 2015, when he finally negotiated an outcome with the tax office and the tax debt was paid, that was when Sandra went to her solicitors or consulted two solicitors, basically saying he hasn't done what he promised. That didn't go anywhere, but that's kind of when she started to go, oh, is he not going to fulfill the promise he made? Another side note is a referral to the case of Onassis and Vergottis. Uh, which provides important guidance about the approach to be adopted in the assessment of credibility. So as I mentioned, witness evidence in this case was really important, which means the credibility of the witnesses is extremely important. In this case, uh, Raymond was the one saying that Frank did the will and he saw him sign it. And so therefore, Raymond's credibility was essential to that evidence being accepted And because his credibility was doubted, that evidence wasn't accepted. So the court referred to this case of Onassis versus Vigotis, and I'll just quote it. Quote, credibility involves wider problems than mere demeanor, which is mostly concerned with whether the witness appears to be telling the truth as he now believes it to be. Credibility covers the following problems. First, is the witness a truthful or untruthful person? Secondly, is he, though a truthful person, telling something less than the truth on this issue, or though an untruthful person, telling the truth on this issue? Thirdly, though he is a truthful person telling the truth as he sees it, did he register the intentions of the conversation correctly? And if so, has his memory correctly retained them? Also, has his recollection been subsequently altered by unconscious bias or wishful thinking or overmuch discussion of it with others? Witnesses, especially those who are emotional, who think that they are morally in the right, tend very easily and unconsciously to conjure up a legal right that did not exist. It is a truism, often used in accident cases, that with every day that passes, the memory becomes fainter and the imagination becomes more active. For that reason, a witness, however honest, rarely persuades a judge that his present recollection is preferable to that which was taken down in writing immediately after the accident occurred. Therefore, contemporary documents are always of the utmost importance. And lastly, although the honest witness believes he heard or saw this or that, is it so improbable that it is on balance more likely that he was mistaken. On this point, it is essential that the balance of probability is put correctly into the scales in weighing the credibility of a witness. End quote. 
that was the case of Cassar. I found it to be a really interesting case. I really enjoy reading cases of forgery to find out how it was done, why it was done, and how it was caught. In this case, really interesting because basically the people who did the forgery came forward and said, yeah, I did it, um, which you generally wouldn't expect someone to do. So I found this case interesting. I really hope you did, and I hope you'll join me for my next case. 